The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service at West Houston Bible Church. See, that's what happens. All those guys stand up there in the back against that window. And no, none of the sound crew could even see that I'd gotten in the pulpit. We've got a heck of a reverb going here. The pre-trib rapture study group meeting is going to be in Dallas beginning 8 o'clock Monday, November, I mean, December the 4th, right? 4th, 4th. And that, uh, and a number of you I know are planning to go. And I've had a request from two or three people about uh, roommates. So uh, there's, uh, I got a call from one pastor yesterday. And one reason I'm putting this out wherever the... Losing the sound team back there, but one reason I'm putting this announcement on here is so it'll stay on the sound file because there's a lot of people who download who will also be be getting this announcement. But I got a call from one pastor yesterday who was wanting to know if I knew anybody who needed to wanted to uh, share a hotel room. So there's a couple of others who've made that same request too. So anyone who's going who would like to uh, share a room with somebody, let Connie Balthrop know, please. Well, before we go to the Lord today and begin our morning worship, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, what a beautiful day it is today that we can come out and come together as a body of believers to rejoice in our salvation and to study your word, that we might be reminded of the magnificence of your grace and of your plan for our lives and be challenged to make sure that we are pressing forward in our spiritual growth. Now, Father, we pray that everything that we do this morning will honor and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we get started in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is in the light of your word that we see truth, we understand truth, and that it is in the light of your word that we are able to organize and understand all of the details in life. 
Now, Father, as we come to our study of your word today, may we be responsive to the challenge that is presented there, that we are to be overcomers, we are to be victorious over the cosmic system, the world system that consistently seeks to influence us, that we are to follow the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ as he defeated the temptations of Satan in the wilderness and he set the course for us, and that as we follow in his footsteps, as we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, that we will be strengthened and enabled in this ongoing spiritual warfare in our souls. Our Father, as we study your word today, may we be able to clearly understand these things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been going through this last verse of Revelation chapter 3 now for about four weeks, focusing on the meaning of the overcomer and coming to grips with what the Bible teaches in this all-important doctrine that the believer is supposed to be an overcomer. I pointed out last time that there is continuing confusion among various believers and various Christians down through the ages over just exactly what is the nature of an overcomer. There are those that think that every Christian is an overcomer. Just as there are those, usually the same people, who believe that every Christian is a disciple, and disciple is just a synonym for being a Christian, just as overcomer is a synonym for being a Christian. What I've been trying to show the last few weeks is that this isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are believers and there are disciples. A disciple is someone who is a committed student of the Word of God, a growing, maturing believer. It is not the same as just someone who is saved. Thus, when you come to the Gospels and you see Jesus making these various statements about what a disciple should do, if that were related to salvation, then we would have works as part of the salvation package. What these mandates are designed to do is to challenge the believer to grow and to mature and to live his life by applying the principles of the Word of God. The believer that does so is a disciple and is an overcomer. Now, the word overcomer, as I've shown, is a word that has a specific object uh, throughout the Scriptures. So let's uh, begin with our home passage, Revelation 3.21. We won't be there very long, so don't turn, you don't need to turn there right away. Do we not have the... Okay, we don't have the projector turned on yet. There we go. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father... On his throne. The key idea here is that at the conclusion of each of these seven evaluation reports, there is this challenge, this exhortation to every believer to be an overcomer. It's an incentive clause. It's designed to challenge us with specific rewards that will be available to those believers who are advancing to spiritual maturity. The word for overcomers, as we have seen, is the verb nikao, and it means a victor, a winner, a conqueror, an overcomer, someone who wins the race. There's numerous examples in Scripture of how this whole concept of of an athletic contest or a struggle or a battle is used to portray the Christian life. From the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you entered into an intensified stage of a cosmic conflict that began in eternity past, 
when Satan rebelled against God. And he led a revolt of the angels against God, and he made a claim that he wanted to be like God, and God has given him the opportunity to try to prove his claim in the midst of human history. And so at the instant that you trusted Christ as your Savior, you became a key player in this cosmic conflict. And the lives of every believer stand as witnesses, testimonies, evidence of the grace of God and the provision of God in the midst of what is the devil's world. And the devil's system of thinking is prominent in the world, and that is referred to under the term the world. We see this brought into the problem passage we're going to focus on this morning in 1 John 5, 4, and 5. This verse presents an apparent problem. Many people will go to this verse and say, See, if you read 1 John 5, 4, and 5, it's evident, it's obvious that an overcomer is a believer, and a believer is an overcomer, and these are synonymous terms. And if we dig a little deeper, if we analyze what the Scripture says, what we discover is not only is that not true, but we have an even greater truth that challenges every believer to push on beyond simply being born again, simply being in the family, to living as if you are actually a member of the family. In 1 John 5, 4, we read, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, first glance interpretation of this passage makes it look as if Believing that Jesus is the Son of God is equivalent to overcoming. And when you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, of course, that's when we're born again. What does that term born again mean? The term born again means that because we are born spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 emphasizes the fact that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born spiritually dead, yet we are physically alive. There has to be a solution to that problem of spiritual death. That was that sin had to be paid for. Christ paid the penalty for that sin on the cross, and the instant we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we are regenerate. Something happens. It's not just a psychological change. It's not just a legal change, which is justification. It is not just a relational change, which is reconciliation. But there is a fundamental transformation that occurs in the immaterial part of the human being, and that is that we acquire something that was lost at the fall, which we identify as a human spirit. It is that immaterial element of what makes human beings human beings that enables their soul to relate to God, enables their consciousness to relate to God, and enables their thinking to think God's thoughts after them, to enable their conscience to have divine norms and standards, and to enable their volition to to choose for God and to follow God. It is a new person that is created. We are indeed new creatures in Christ at that instant. And we are also adopted into the royal family of God. And we see this birth imagery that goes throughout the Scripture, that at the instant of salvation, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we become a member of God's royal family. We are adopted into that family, but nevertheless we are 
infants spiritually, just like any physical baby that is born. We're fairly helpless. We don't know a whole lot. We can't fend for ourselves. We can't feed ourselves. We can't. We we don't have much uh, uh, muscle control. We don't have much muscular control. We know very little, and we have to grow. We have to take in nourishment, and it takes time, and it takes nutrition, and it takes uh, a number of different things in order to produce that physical growth. The same thing is true in the spiritual life. And if you're going to grow up in physical life, in normal life, natural life, then what has to happen? You have to acquire a little uh, discipline along with your knowledge if you're going to be productive, if you're going to have a, a life based on wisdom. And if you have good parents who are teaching you and training you, then those parents are going to discipline you to guide and direct your thinking and your behavior according to proper norms and standards. Now, the reason I bring that into play is because frequently what we discover at least in my life when I was growing up, is statements made by parents to children saying, if you're a member of this family, you just don't act like that. If you are, if you are a dean, you don't lie. Okay, I think everybody can relate to that. If you're a member of this family, you don't, uh, you don't do that. You don't whine and you don't cry about things, right? Now, does that mean that you never lied? No. It means that that is the standard that should characterize a member of that, of your family, of your parents' family. They had certain standards that should characterize that. But there were times when we all failed and we had to uh, experience the Board of Education or the Rod of Correction or whatever the method was in your family. But the point that I'm making is that this is a common statement that members of X family don't per- don't enact Y behavior, but there's always failure. We have to use that kind of analogy in order to understand some of these statements in First John. So this is the apparent problem. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. But in order to understand this, we have to understand that phrase, overcoming the world. And we saw that predominantly throughout Scripture when we have this concept of overcoming mentioned, it is not related to sin, it is related to the world. That there are three enemies of the believer represented in Scripture, the uh, devil, uh, the sin nature in the believer, and the world system. The Lord Jesus Christ uses this same phrase in John 16:33, which we have looked at the last few weeks, that he says that before he goes to the cross, between his celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we just celebrated, and his uh, going to the cross, he said, I have overcome the world, a perfect tense construction. Now, in this particular instance, grammar is very important because it shows us that at, before he went to the cross... Before he paid the penalty for sin, before the issue was sin, he had already defeated, he had already had victory over, he had already conquered the cosmic system, he had already conquered the world, he had overcome the world. It was completed before he went to the cross. That tells us that the that overcoming whatever it's related to is not related to the sin-slash-salvation-justification issue. It's related to the spiritual life uh, issue. Very important to understand that. It's related to the world. And we've seen our little diagram where every believer 
has a problem. Every family has a problem. Every human being has a problem. We're all born with this nasty sin nature that is oriented to opposition to God. And that sin nature is often uh, uh, tempted by the devil who is our other enemy. And the devil utilizes a system of thinking, actually many systems of thinking, that are identified in the Scripture as a world system, uh, the system of worldliness, which I also refer to as the cosmic system. That's cosmic with a K following the Greek. We looked at this definition. I want to run by you one more time just to try to get it to sink in so that we can remember what worldliness is. It describes a collection of ideas, philosophies, religions, standards, and values which characterize a culture or subculture, as well as the goals and methods to achieve those ends. Its purpose is to suppress truth and unrighteousness. All worldly thinking is designed to, be, uh, to counter the truth of God's Word in some way. It may include a lot of things that are true, but that's because living in God's creation, you have to... Uh, assume that certain things are true. It's the way it's put together, its orientation. Its purpose is to suppress truth in unrighteousness and redefine reality to avoid the righteous demands of God. As such, this worldview incorporates and is expressed in every aspect of a culture's views of the individual and social relationship. Nothing escapes a cosmic worldview. There's, there's no detail too small or too great to come into this kind of a system. It involves individual relationships, social relationships, marriage, family, po- politics, law. All of these things are related there. Theories of knowledge and learning that would affect education. Uh, expressions of reality in visual and performing arts. That involves uh, aesthetics. Uh, science, technology, literature, and law. Nothing is completely neutral. In fact, this last week had a friend of mine who is a uh, taper, has a DVD group down in the valley, called me up, and he was listening to a tape, and he said, said, well, you were talking about this thing in interpretation today called pre-understanding. Well, in the legal profession, we call it a preloaded bias. I thought that was pretty good. Because that's what happens with most people from the, the culture sort of programs into us as we grow up a preloaded bias that is antagonistic to the world and fits with our sin nature. It assimilates to our sin nature so that the cosmic system provides a rationale for uh, the activities of our sin nature, whether it's towards uh, a human good or whether it's towards uh, personal sin, and this affects our expression and how we express what we uh, see in ter- and how we view reality, which comes out in visual arts and performing arts, science, technology, literature, and law. When the Christian operates within this thought structure, even though it may overlap in many ways with a biblical worldview, it's still classified as worldliness. Now, that's why this is so difficult to nail down, and there's a lot of of discussion about these things because you can see people who have a lot of things together and they believe 
in a lot of uh, good absolutes that are biblical. But it's the way they package the system and the way they put it together that becomes the problem. Because if it includes certain elements of human viewpoint thought, then what happens? It's diluted and destroyed in the system. You can have uh, you can have a glass of water that's 99.9% pure. It's that cyanide in there that will get you, and that's the problem. It means that we have to think. We can't just move right along. Every culture is this way, whether you're talking about an American culture of the 17th century or 19th century or 20th century. Each culture has its elements, has its cosmic system that dominates, whether you're talking about Asian culture that's uh, uh, Buddhist or whether you're talking about an Indian culture that's influenced by Hindu thought or whether you're talking about a late 19th century European uh, post-Kantian Hegelian type of uh, thought system. All of these produce views of law and literature and music and art. And even though we may think that some of this is is valuable or it appeals to us, we have to look at where, where does it come from? What's the thought that underlies it? What's the system that... Produced it, and I often do this with music. Music is one of those funny things that that a lot of people think is is value neutral, but there are preloaded biases that come into play in music as well. And if you just go back and listen to uh, the music of a of a, a Byzantine choir and the chants, the monastic chants, the uh, Byzantine chants in the uh, that reflected the music of the 4th or 5th century. And then you think about how music was by the time of Bach, and you think about how music is today. Why did music change? Well, each time you have a major shift in music, you have a major thought shift that takes place. And when you have those major thought shifts, it affects music, it affected art, it affects everything. And that's all part of worldview, and it's all part of worldliness. So... If you're going to be a Christian, sometimes it seems like this is a little overwhelming, but we have to analyze these things because we're all affected by our, our culture and that culture around us. If you were to be a missionary to some place in Africa, if you were to go to Kenya or you were to go to uh, any number of other countries in Africa, Ghana, where, Nigeria, wherever, you would have to learn to think like those people think. How, why are they the way they are? What, is it, what do they mean by certain terms within their, their language system? If you were to be a missionary to uh, Muslims in Tehran, you would have to learn how they think because their religious system is the world system in which they operate. And so we have to communicate to them within that particular context. Well, just as somebody in an Indian culture or an Asian culture is influenced by their religions, and the cultural ideals and values and art that's there that's all been influenced by, by their religious systems and philosophies, so too have Americans been influenced. And we grew up in that cultural pool. And all of this is affected by us. But the thing we need to know, the thing that gives us the victory is knowing the Word of God. That's the focal point. Sometimes we can get so overwhelmed and we have to identify everything. Well, we have to identify some things. But the most important thing we have to know is the Word of God. That's why 
the very first thing Jesus references when he was tempted in the wilderness is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Bible study and learning the Word of God isn't really optional in the Christian life. It's not something that's, that's just there. It is designed to teach us how to think within the culture of divine viewpoint, which is going to be counter to the culture of human viewpoint. So as we continued our study, we saw that worldliness was the thought of the creature Lucifer in rebellion against God, indicating by, by arrogance toward God and uh, the promotion of self, as well as antagonism and hostility uh, toward God, his plan, his thinking, and divine revelation. Now that's all by way of review. Let's look at this issue in, in 1 John chapter 5. We looked at Jesus Christ how he overcame the world, and now we have to understand how we overcome the world. Now this, as we look at 1 John 5, 4, we read, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This phrase, born of God, is a perfect tense participle in the Greek indicating completed action. This is, it's a noun. It's used as a noun to refer to the believer. And so we could, uh, we could translate that or paraphrase it rather as for whoever is a believer overcomes the world. Now at faith alone in Christ alone, what, what happened there? That's when you realize the payment of the sin penalty at the cross. That's where sin was dealt with, was at the cross. But here we're dealing with something subsequent to that. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, first glance interpretation of this verse would indicate that the word faith there suggested belief in Christ. But the word faith often indicates not faith in Christ, but that body of belief that we have, that body of doctrine that we have. So what is it that overcomes the world? Not faith in Christ, that's what got us saved, but it is that body of belief in uh, the Scriptures, that body of doctrine that we have in our soul, that when we apply that to the issues of life, as Jesus did in the wilderness, then we overcome the world. The emphasis here is on the present, the the post-salvation life of the believer. Now, this phrase, it's very important to understand this because it's so, it, it is, it is confusing for people. In 1 John, we have this phrase, whoever is born of God, or the one who is born of God, the one who is born of Him, is used in three other passages. And at first glance, it would indicate that that what is being said about the person born of God is somewhat characteristic of being a believer. And I want to show you why that won't work. Here are the three other passages that are crucial. 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that He is righteous, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, says you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. 1 John 3.9 says, 
Whoever has been born of God does not sin. What in the world does that mean? Every believer hits that and goes, wait a minute, I'm saved, but I still sin. Am I not saved? What's going on here? What is John saying? Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And then 1 John 4, 7 states, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, what we have here is three different verses, a fourth verse if we add in our, our 1 John 5, 4 verse. We have four verses that indicate a characteristic about somebody who is born again. The temptation is to say that if you're, a, if you're born again, this is what you do. If you're not doing this, then you're not born again. So we try to apply that reverse logic to the passage. That if, you, that if you're not overcoming the world, then you weren't born again. If you're not practicing righteousness, then you weren't born again. If, you're, if you sin, then you weren't born again. If you uh, don't love God or don't know God or you don't, know, you don't love one another, then you weren't born again. Now, that's fallacious reasoning because you can go from one direction to the other, but you can't go back. So what all these passages are basically saying is, is God is saying, look, if you're in my family, you don't act like this. doesn't mean that you can't act like this. It's that you're not supposed to act like this. We really have only two options for interpreting these passages. Option A is that what this, these passages are saying is that genuine born-again believers practice righteousness, they don't sin, and they love one another. Or the other option is that what this is saying is that only born-again believers can practice righteousness, not sin, and love their brothers. But not all who are born again will necessarily practice righteousness, avoid sin, and love their brothers. Do you see the difference? Let me go over it again. The first option, which is what most people think this is saying, is that genuine born-again believers practice righteousness, don't sin, and love one another. Option two is that only born-again believers can practice righteousness, not sin, and love one another, but there are many who are born again who won't do that. That's the difference. Okay? Let's try to clarify this some more. I see, still see a few confused looks. First glance readers think that what these verses say is that born again believers always practice righteousness. Well, there's a translation problem there we'll get to in a minute. It's actually doing righteousness as opposed to practicing. There's an important difference there. First glance, readers think that it says that born-again believers don't sin. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet there's not one person in here that hasn't committed a sin this morning. And nearly everybody in here thinks you're a believer. Now, let's push this logic to its conclusion. If this passage is saying what it seems to say on the surface, then nobody in here is a believer because you sinned. Well, obviously that's not true. So this must be saying something other than what it appears to say at first glance. And then the third, would, the third indication is that, based on 4.7, that born-again believers love one another. The natural conclusion from that sort of interpretation is 
that if you aren't practicing righteousness, you aren't born again. If you sin, you aren't born again. If you don't love one another, you aren't born again. But this isn't saying that. It can't be saying that because that's not reality. We all know that. And it's not an experiential knowledge. So what we have to do is is probe a little more deeply into these verses to see what, in fact, they do say. The point in each of these verses is really that only a born-again believer can practice righteousness. An unbeliever can't practice righteousness. He can't do righteousness, literally. It's the verb poieo. It's not proso. It's saying that only born-again believers can overcome the world. Unbelievers can't overcome the world. It's saying that only only a believer who's born again uh, can't sin. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And it's also saying only born-again believers can love one another. It's not saying that these attributes are always there for everyone who is born again. You can go from the fact that every believer can do this, but not every believer is going to do that. Okay, let's look at these passages, break them down a little bit. First John 2.29 If you know that He is righteous, that is, we know that God's attribute is righteousness. He's our Father, so therefore, as a child, we should imitate our Father. John says, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Actually, the translation there is misleading. It is the verb poieo, a present active participle, meaning, and poieo is a broad verb like the English word to do. It can mean to produce, to do, to act, to make or manufacture something, to create. Sometimes it's used for God creating. Uh, It means to cause, to uh, bring about, to accomplish, to perform. It can, in some cases, imply practice. But the stronger word for practice in the Greek is proso. And practice means to perform an activity or skill regularly or habitually. Now, there's a lot of difference between saying that everyone who does righteousness is born of him and everyone who practices righteousness is done of him, is born of him. So, we have to uh, make sure we have a correct translation there. But the idea is that if you see somebody and there's righteousness there, then since only a believer can perform righteousness, then they must be a believer. But the reverse is not necessarily implied. That if you see someone and there's no righteousness there, that that means they're not saved. You can't go in that direction. You can only go in the other direction. First John 2.29 says that no one can do genuine righteousness without having been born again. That's just all, this, all it's saying. Is no one can perform genuine righteousness unless they're born again. Unbelievers just can't do it. All their works of righteousness is or it's filthy rags. Okay, let's look at 1 John 3.9. This is the one everybody has trouble with. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Wait a minute. I sinned this morning. Okay, let's look at this. The explanation is, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. So not only is it saying that whoever is born again doesn't sin, it's saying he can't sin because he's been born of God. This is saying the same thing that Paul says in Galatians 5.16. 
It's talking, when, when we read, for his sin remains in him, his sin abides in him, it's the Greek verb meno, it's that idea of fellowship. It's the same thing that's expressed in Galatians 5.16, where Paul said, walk by means of the Spirit, and it would be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, wait a minute. If I'm walking by the Spirit and I can't sin, how do I ever sin? See, Paul is saying, if you're walking by the Spirit, it's impossible for you to sin. That's not any different from what John's saying when a person who's born again doesn't sin. He's saying that it's only people who are born again that can be in a temporal period where they don't sin. How does that happen? Well, according to Galatians 5.16, it happens when you're walking by the Spirit. And the best illustration I can come up for this is driving a car uphill and you don't have any brakes, and you only have drive and neutral. As long as you've got the accelerator down, you're walking by the Spirit, you're moving by the Spirit, and you're going forward. But as soon as you take your foot off of the accelerator, you're not backing up, you're, you're, you're not intentionally backing up, I mean, you're not putting it in reverse, it's just that's the default position is as soon as you stop consciously walking by the Spirit, the default position is that you go to the sin nature. You don't make necessarily make a choice. to uh, Your choice isn't, okay, I'm going to let the sin nature control now. Your choice is, I'm not going to depend on the Holy Spirit. And as soon as you stop depending on the Holy Spirit, then the default position is to go to the sin nature, and then you will sin. And so as long as you have your spiritual gas pedal down, walking by the Spirit or driving by the Spirit to make the metaphor consistent, then you can't go in reverse. But as soon as you stop that moment-by-moment dependence in walking, then you immediately go into reverse, default position, go to the sin nature, you're out of fellowship, and you start sinning. But when you're acting like a child of God, walking by the Spirit, acting like you're a member of the royal family, you don't sin. Because you're in fellowship, you're depending upon the Holy Spirit, and it's impossible for you to sin. But as soon as you stop that, then you go in reverse, and we start sinning again. That's why the emphasis is on walking by means of the Spirit. This isn't a form of perfectionism. This is simply stating that when you're in right relationship to God, abiding in Him, walking by the Spirit, you're not going to sin. But if you do, what happens? Well, now you've got to recover, and that's 1 John 1, 9. You confess your sins, and there's recovery, and you go forward again. So 1 John 3, 9 is saying the same thing that Galatians 5, 16 is saying, and that is that the person who is acting like a member of the royal family of God doesn't sin. When he's in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, he doesn't sin, but when he stops uh, depending on the Holy Spirit, then he does. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another... For love is from God. That's the command. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Okay, let's just make one observation. If this passage is saying that everyone who's truly regenerate loves one another, then why is he addressing regenerate believers with the command to love one another? Oh, I know that. It's too early in the morning for that kind of logic. Let me say that again. If... If, if, what the, if this verse means that everyone who's regenerated always loves one another, then why is he even telling believers to love one another if they're automatically going to do it? 
See, he's addressing believers because he knows that, that we can default to the sin nature and not love one another. We have to grow and learn to love one another. And he relates that to two things. Everyone who loves is born of God. In other words, if you're not born of God, you can't love. And then that last phrase, knows God. Well, what does it mean to know God? See, we live in a world of such sloppy evangelical verbiage that we've picked up all this terminology that we use thinking it sounds good and it's biblical. We tell people that you want to get saved? Well, invite Jesus into your life or commit yourself to Christ or invite Jesus into your heart. But none of that terminology is used anywhere in the Scriptures as a synonym for faith in Christ. What the Scriptures say is believe in Christ or receive Him as your Savior. That's the biblical verbiage. But we use sloppy language. And we talk to people and we want to know if you're saved, so we ask, do you know Jesus? We're using knowing God and knowing Jesus as a synonym for being saved. But the Bible does not use knowing God and knowing Jesus as a synonym for salvation. It is reflective of have you grown to a knowledge, a mature knowledge of God after salvation. Let me show you how you understand this. 1 John 4, 7, we have to ask two questions. Number one, is knowing God and loving God synonymous with salvation, i.e. trusting Christ? In other words, every believer is going to automatically love one another, love God, and know God. Or is it the result of spiritual growth after salvation. To understand this, we have to look at a couple of parallel passages. 1 John 2.15 tells us, do not love the world. Ah, wait a minute. That's what overcoming is all about, right? The world. So there the believer is admonished, don't love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, that is an objective genitive love for the Father, is not in him. Ah, so you see what John's saying? Is if you love the world, you can't love, you're not loving God. If you're, when you're loving God, you're not loving the world. These are mutually exclusive positions. You can't love them both at the same time. He says, if anyone loves the world, so when you're out of fellowship and you're focused on the world system, the love for the Father's not in you. For all that is in the world, he goes on to say, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Okay, let's go to 1 John 2, 3. What 1 John 2, 14 and following tells us is that loving the world is mutually exclusive to loving God. Now, if that has to do with salvation, then that means that before you can get saved, i.e. love God, you have to quit loving the world. That's work salvation. None of us can do that. That's impossible. Now, let's understand this just a little more clearly and a little quickly. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And all kinds of, of, of people will say, See, the way you know that you're saved is if you're obedient. If you're disobedient, you weren't saved. Obedience, keeping his commandments, is evidence that you're truly saved. But that has a pre-loaded bias. That knowing Him means to trust Christ as Savior. So what do we have here? The phrase, come to know Him, is a perfect active indicative verb. 
meaning of gnosko, meaning to know, to learn, or to acquire knowledge. The perfect tense means that it's completed action. It's referring to something that happened in the past, and the results continue. It's completed action. So Jesus, uh, so John is saying here, by this we know that we have come to know him in the past with ongoing results if we are, present tense, keeping his commandments. Now, is there some place perhaps in the scripture somewhere else where we have this same perfect tense of gnosko that might help us understand this? There is. In John 14.7. John 14.7, Jesus is addressing Philip and the disciples, and he says, If you had come to know me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Hmm. What's happening in John here? Well, John chapter 13, which is right before this, is where he gathers with all of his disciples for the Lord's table. That's where he institutes the Lord's table, which we had this morning. And he says to all of these disciples, to all twelve that are there, including Judas, he says, you are all clean, katharizo, a noun, uh, the verb, uh, 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 it uses the noun there, indicating they're all saved, except one of you. Uh, Which one was that? That was Judas. And so then he tells Judas to leave. So 12 minus 1 leaves 11. Now, are those 11 all clean? Yes. Are they all saved? Yes. And then he starts telling them the new commandment I'm going to give you, that you love one another. Now, is that addressed to unbelievers or to believers? They're to believers. So at the end of John chapter 13, he's talking to believers. And then he says, well, I'm getting ready to leave you. And, and, and Peter comes along and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going or how to get there. And the Lord says, well, my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And then they continue in this discussion. And Jesus, still addressing them in verse 7, says, if you had come to know me. Now, are they saved? Yeah, we've already established that. He's telling born-again believers that they don't know him. Born again, 11 born again disciples who've been with him almost day in and day out for three years. And he says, you don't know me. You're saved. You're going to heaven. But you don't know me yet. In other words, there no, hasn't been enough post-salvation growth to fit the category of really knowing who Jesus is. And so then John, Philip says, well, Lord, show us. And Jesus says to Philip in verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Is he saying Philip's not saved? No. He's saying Philip hasn't grown any after salvation. And he uses that same perfect active indicative verb. So what's the point? The point is that in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, when, when John says that if you've come to, this is how you know you've come to know him if you keep his commandments, Coming to know him is spiritual growth after salvation. And how do you know that you've reached spiritual maturity? You're obedient. Is that a new concept? No. Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, all through Deuteronomy, God says to the Jews, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But you have to grow to love somebody. It's not instantaneous. Jesus does the same thing in the upper room discourse, John 13, John 14, and following. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So loving God and knowing Him are the result of growth because you're living by the Word of God day in and day out. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And as a result of that, you grow to spiritual maturity. And as a result of that, you're loving one another and you're loving God. 
So, verse John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He's not saying he's not saved. He's just saying you're claiming to be a mature believer and you're not. You're still an arrogant baby believer. First John 2, 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love for God. Remember, it's either love for God or love for the world. The love for God has truly been perfected. And that's the Greek verb teleao, meaning to be matured. So it is a maturation process. So what we're talking about here in terms of victory over the world is related to knowing God and to loving God. And all this has to do with reaching spiritual maturity, not getting saved. So when we go back to 1 John 5, 4, John is saying whoever is born of God, and the, the, the hidden text there is whoever is born of God and living like it overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That is the body of doctrine that we've learned from the Word of God and we apply to the temptations related to the world. And verse 5, And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, the one who doesn't believe Jesus is the Son of God can't overcome the world. Only the believer has the tools, has the power, has the Word of God and the Spirit of God to be able to overcome the world. The unbeliever can't. Does this mean that only, that only those who uh, overcome the world are true believers? It's not saying that. It's saying that only a believer can overcome the world. And the challenge from Revelation is that we all need to be overcomers. We need to learn to overcome the world. And the incentive is that we can sit on the throne of with Jesus, even as He overcame the world and sat on His Father's throne. The incentive is to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in His coming kingdom. And we'll come back and finish up with that. That's another fascinating study, and we'll do that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You that we have a free salvation, a salvation that is based on faith alone in Christ alone. It is a by grace through faith salvation. And that we don't have to do anything in order to be saved. We don't have to do anything to prove we're saved. Salvation is a totally free gift whereby you regenerate us at the time that we believe Jesus died on the cross for us. But there is a challenge that once we are born again, once we become members of your family, that we learn who you are and what our family identity is and how we advance and grow and mature so that we can live consistently with our new identity as new creatures in Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is trust in Christ. It's a free gift. You've just been offered eternal salvation because Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross. And at the instant you trust in Him alone, you have eternal life which can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.